Well, thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you want more info on the things we're doing, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. And here we go. We are up and live. Don't don't you wish everybody heard what we were just talking about? We sp- probably spent more time having a discussion about something other than this podcast <laughs> in the podcast room with the microphones in front of us, Correct. not recording, than we we're about to spend on this actual podcast. And don't you all want to know what it was about? Yeah. We're not telling, but good times. Don't worry. It was it was one of our nerdy things, not <laughs> not like what are we going to do about this church or. Oh, yeah. No, it was. Yeah, it was good. All right, Alex. Yeah. Here we go. Let's. One of the questions that I, I've actually had somebody ask me, so I thought you and I could could field this and maybe speak on behalf of the sermon team, but why are we doing all five woes? Uh, I've seen other people do sermon series where they just do all five woes in one shot. You know, we did Zephaniah. We didn't do it in very long. Habakkuk is about the same length, but yet it's going to be a sermon series that's four weeks longer. And a big reason for that is because we're spending some time on the woes. So why did we decide that? What do we got going on? What do you think? Yeah, I feel like preachers are never happy. You give them like a large chunk of text and they're like, how do I preach such a large chunk in one (laughs) sermon? And then you give them like three verses and they're like, oh, there's only three verses here. Um, Yeah. I think like you're saying, we're we're at the part in Habakkuk where there's this conversation between God and Habakkuk, and then God is going to explain that by proclaiming five woes mm-hmm. to Babylon. And I think it like verse six is very good as a what do you, intro to this. Say not or shall not all these things take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say woe, woe, woe five times. Yeah, it would be really easy to just kind of hit these broad picture things. And I think a lot of places would do that. One for time, two, there's not, they're they're similar to one another. And three, they're all very hard hitting. Like to get a hard hitting sermon five weeks in a row, we don't want people to come in and feel like we're just the beat them up church and kick them out. But I think where we're going with this is there's enough nuance in each one where it can it can reach each of us in a different way. And maybe one of the woes, when you hear it and when we preach on it, you're like, you know, that really doesn't relate to me as much. But maybe one of the other ones really does. And we want to take that deeper dive into each one of these. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I, I think even when we started talking about the five woes, even the sermon team had to sort of discuss this a little bit. Do we really want to do five? Is this going to feel like the beat em up church? One of the neat things that started to pop out of it was – Pastor Jonathan realizing uh, with one of his woes that he wrote the sermon for, he just said, the way that I'm going to approach this is thinking about how would a faithful person deal with this particular woe and how does one who is faithful look at someone who's suffering the woe? And it led to the discussion on lament and it led to a discussion on us picking the path of faith, which we all thought that's really cool like that. So let's think about how we can lead these sermons to not be just sort of beating everybody over the head with you are, you are, you know, you're participating in blood guilt. You're participating in the, it was more of a, 
let's love the people who are participating in those things. And how do we, how do we turn the table there? And then that was the first step for us. And we were like, Ooh, I like that a lot. And then the next step was when you were preparing the sermon a few weeks ago and you started talking about the idea of having a choice and you had a sermon illustration that we were kind of listening to and we were all like, I don't know about this. Yeah, and then, pretty bad. But the second thing you said was so brilliant and it's what we ended up using. You said, the other one I thought about is a map. And then how you worded it was not just a map, but when I see something on a map and then I look for it and I don't see it, then I know I'm off track. And I thought, what a brilliant way for us to navigate the idea of repentance, discipleship. You can look at the things in front of you and go, I feel like I'm a little bit off track here. And that just blew the whole thing wide open. That became sort of the illustration for us to use the map. And then I'm, I'm really glad we're doing the five woes because it's giving us a lot of places to journey in here and kind of think this through. So I think I'm describing you correctly and how you were wording it, but what, what would you have to add to that? Yeah, I, w- I use the terms landscapes and landmarks because, you know, we kind of, we kind of joke. There's a, um, we won't say Pastor Larry's name, but he always wanted to put maps on the screen whenever he was talking like, oh, you know, the roadmap to, uh, you know, su- to success or the roadmap to this. And mm-hmm. sometimes like you can cause you to gloss over. And what was different about this is it's not so much like here's the map and the turns you need to take or the directions, but when you are on the right path, and I use the illustration if you haven't, if you weren't there for the first sermon of, you know, when you're, when you're hiking and you're traveling, there's sometimes you don't really know if you're on the right path because it's tricky or the way trails are marked or sometimes not marked very well. But when you see the landscape and the landmarks along the way, there's comfort in that. Mm-hmm. If, if I expect to turn a corner around a mountain and see a lake, and I see it, then I'm like, oh, perfect. I know I'm on the right path now. Right. I'm, I'm put at ease because I saw the landmark or the landscape of the right choice. But if I turn a corner and the lake is not there, then I'm like, oh, man, I'm on the wrong path. And so it's those landscapes and landmark. That was that was the language we used. And I think what what's helpful with that is we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about sermons today. Often when we preach— we want to, we ask ourselves a question, who will the hearer identify with mm-hmm. in the sermon? Or what part is the is the hearer understanding as where they fit into this? Not to say write their story into it, but for example, you know, these woes are, are pretty bad stuff that the Babylonians were doing. Like these guys were really bad. And so when you preach this, if you just harbor on the like, these guys were so bad, look at all these terrible things they've done. The average person will sit there and be like, well, I haven't, I haven't murdered anyone. You know, mine was, uh, uh, you have plundered, oh, for the blood of man and violence on the earth. Uh, I'm looking at two, eight, you've plundered many nations. Like how many people sitting in the congregation are going to say like, yeah, you know what? I have plundered many nations. I have just, you know, caused wars and destroyed hundreds of thousands of people. I need to repent of that. No, no one, none of them. Right. So either we have to say we have to identify with that or identify with the opposite. Now, sometimes we can identify with that because Jesus puts the standard of holy living as, you know, he says anyone who even is angry at his brother has committed murder in his heart. So we can say, okay, maybe you haven't plundered many nations, but how do you in small ways plunder around you? But going through each one of these also allows us to say, well, maybe you haven't done these things, 
and you don't identify, and I'm not asking you to identify with them, but I want you to think about the people around you who do identify with them. How do you respond to them? And I think as believers, we don't, we don't think about that enough. Like we're so personal and individualized that we think, okay, my own sin, my own holiness, how, do I have a check on this or not? But we don't look at look at either the brother or sister next to us or the unbeliever around us and say, they're struggling with this. They are examples of this. But now how do I respond to that? Right. And that that really shifts us. I don't want to take too much out of your uh, your next sermon where you're going to go with it. But it, uh, yeah, it, it really makes us wonder like what's God's responsibility and what's mine mm-hmm. and what's the right response for me to have. Yeah. Which is why going through the five woes I thought was a good idea when we worked on, you know, setting up the calendar for this a few years ago. I, as I worked through Habakkuk, then I was kind of like, that. Oh, I think this would be good. I think the five woes will be an interesting way of handling this. Then when we started doing it as a sermon team, I was a little overwhelmed with the conversation because I'm going, maybe this is a mistake. Maybe we shouldn't be doing five <laughs> woes. Maybe we should do three of them or do it in two sermons or something or do it in just one. But now that we're into it and the fact that, like I said, each of those pieces sort of fell together, uh, you know, the landmark decision or discussion was a, was a really helpful one to kind of crack it open for me. I, I'm loving this and I'm loving working through it slowly. I'm loving like you're saying, I'm loving the challenge both to us as Christians, but then also how we respond as Christians to the people around us who actually do those things. You know, with this particular sermon that we're talking about right now, the, the, the woe of, you know, choosing uh, security over community was really enlightening for me when, when I was coming to those conclusions. And I'm looking around at Babylon and I'm thinking about how big and amazing the city is. And I'm going, whoa. I feel bad for those folks. And I, even in that, it, it made me look around and go, most of the people that I know in my life don't live like this. I don't know that I have anybody in my life that lives opulently. So I don't, I don't think about it. But then the question, like you said, becomes how do I then respond to someone who's wealthy? Right. What is my response to them going to be? And I'm still wrestling with that a little bit because I can't lie and say that there's not some jealousy in my heart sometimes. You know, there's there's days where I wish I could buy my wife something or days that I wish I could buy my kids something that I look around and I go, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, it may not even happen in this lifetime. And have I let them down or am I letting people down? And then I go, no, that I, that's not really what's important. There's something bigger. But then I, so I get jealous of them, of, of people that just don't have to think like that. But at the same time, I don't think their life is as great as it is it as I think it is sometimes in my head. Yeah, and I think it's it's so important for us to think about how God calls us to respond to others because the philosophy of this world tells us that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think we get mixed up on that a lot. I think that's why, uh, to to use a very loaded term here, like Marxist ideals have mm-hmm. crept into our culture. Just this idea of like when we're talking about money, like overthrow the wealthy. The wealthy are inherently bad. If you have money, it's because you've done something wrong or simply possessing money, and it's a class struggle. And I think that's because, again, we're so individualistic in our culture in the way that we study and practice even our faith that sometimes we forget that God doesn't just teach us how to deal with our own sin, but how to help others deal with their sin or how to respond to others who sin or respond to the sins of others. Right. And uh, yeah, I think Habakkuk 
going through the woes slowly allows us to say, hey, this this particular woe we're studying, there might be pieces of that in your heart. Examine your heart. Or there might not be pieces of that in mm-hmm. your heart. But I'm sure you know someone and have interacted with someone who has pieces of that in their heart or lots of big pieces of that in your heart. What's your response to them? Mm-hmm. How do you see what is, what is God, whether it's a, a brother in Christ, brother, sister in Christ, or an unbeliever, what does it look like to live in that tension and doing the five woes slowly helps us with that. Yeah. No, that's great. So I think this particular woe, let's dive into it just a little bit, back to that idea of the wealthy and what they have. Mm-hmm. You know, in the sermon, I really go into detail about the idea that once you have something, you want to you want to have more of it. So you begin to actually try to protect what you have and you become more concerned with security rather than actually sharing what you have and giving community. And uh, the irony of, you know, the ancient Royals and everybody else is they were trying to elevate themselves above the people. So they didn't feel what the people felt anymore. And they wanted to sort of utilize uh, what they, what they had conquered and accomplished and sort of push them away from feeling the average person, you know, uh, that sounds great. It doesn't totally work today because a lot of us live in some type of representative democracy where we at least think we could become president, <laughs> right? I, I remember being a kid, like everyone's like, you can be, you all could be president. And I'm like, mathematically, that's not possible, but okay. Uh, it, meaning in my head, I'm thinking it's four year term. There's 25 people in my class. That's a hundred years. We don't even get to vote for president. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you don't yeah. even get to become president until you're 35. So the chances of us all living to 135 years old is not we're not allowed to be president. And that's just our class level and everybody else's. So, but I think in our heart of hearts, we believe if I really wanted to, I could get some of those things. I could get to that level. I, okay. Again, not really, but just, just go with me there. People think that way. The ancient world, wealthy people, you never had a chance to attain that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there are still things that we can pity people for today who are wealthy. So, you know, as we've bumped into people who are wealthy or we've interacted with people over the years who lean toward that side, either what are things that we've heard from them that they wish they could communicate clearly, you know, maybe things that they, everyone else thinks are great, but they don't. Or as we think about if we were wealthy, what are some of the things we would miss about the life we have now? It's kind of just where I want to venture here for a little bit. So what what do you think? What What pops in your head? <laughs> Just leaving it for him. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, my mind goes to, um, you know, I, I'm trained on a, a premarital counseling technique called prepare and rich. I'm yep. sure you've heard of that. Um, they have you as a part of that, you give couples a sheet and it's got 16 questions and they rank and it's, it's all about money, how you view mm-hmm. money. And basically what they've come up with their ideas, there are four ways that people view money. Do you see money as uh, power? You like money and, and the power and influence that it can give you. Do you see it as entertainment? You like that it can give you entertaining experiences and, and make your life easier. Do you see it as security? Um, you know, as mm-hmm. as a hedge of protection, and then you don't you don't want. And it's like the opposite of entertainment is like I can pursue fun things, and security is like I can avoid negative things. Mm-hmm. And um, there was one more. Uh, oh, looking good status. Like you, it, 
shows that you have a certain status. Anyway, the idea behind it is you you fill that out, you help couples see, you know, if there's a difference. Like, for example, if one of them views it as security and the other views it as um, entertainment, like, hey, here's some potential things that could come right. up in your marriage. Anyway, I just I, I think about that and I think specifically about the security one. Like how uh, this is a mindset that a lot of people have that, well, really all four of them though, how you use money is often a selfish means. Right. Like I see this as, well, it can build this protection around me and I am secure in life because very negative things can't happen to me because I have, you know, my car could break down, but I'm not desperate for a car because I have the money. My furnace could go but I'm not desperate, you know, uh, or entertainment. I want to enjoy life. So I earn money so that I can take nice vacations or go out to nice places to eat status. I like when people look at me and treat me differently because they think I have status, whether I have it or not, they think I do. They treat me differently. And then influences. I like the ability to influence others. All of those are rooted in this, this selfishness. And so when I look at this, this woe, and I look at, um, you know, the it's it's really it's using resources for selfish means. Right? How can I gather resources to use them in a way that's going to benefit me, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of God's calling of using resources to benefit others? And I think I think that's part that's the idea of sacrifice, right? Like we should be sacrificial in the things that we have. But Babylon and the woe is using wealth as as that insulation like you say like it's me what can i prop up yeah. what can i build what can i make how can i make my life better my life easier my life more enjoyable uh instead of to look outward and say what are the needs of the, of the people around me yeah yeah i think that's helpful and i think if we just stop and think about money maybe a little differently than we would before I think it's a good place to start, right? What what are your goals with money? What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, so what you're, yeah, what you're describing there, if someone just does that own self-reflection, they might go, oh, I'm just, what am I doing this like this for? You know, where am I going with this? Uh, for me, I, <clears throat> I've talked to people who are extremely wealthy before, and we've kind of dug into some of the finer points of, their life and what they've dealt with and, you know, where they've been and what they regret. One of the things that I've heard from some folks is if they, when they attained wealth, because most people that I've talked to did not, they were not born wealthy. They became wealthy at some point in their life. So they scraped by in the beginning and then say 40 years old or something, they, you know, sold a company or they made some money. Yeah. In that moment, they couldn't trust people to be their real friend anymore. (laughs) That's one of the big things I heard. One of the things I also heard is if you, you know, went through a divorce or something before, you know, before you made the switch and became wealthy or after you became wealthy, you got divorced. uh, People really questioned whether the person that they're dating really honestly wants to date them. So it's a very similar Mm -hmm. idea, but they could just never trust people again to not be in it for their own, their own selfish needs. That's interesting. And what that led to, these people mentioned, just a sense of impending doom that I'm going to be alone forever and the loneliness that accompanies it was yeah. something they didn't realize was going to be the trade-off. And so they were after security or they were after status. And once they received it, 
they looked around and thought, I don't like this place. Yeah. yeah. This is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy to think about because most of us are living not paycheck to paycheck necessarily, but we're, you know, we're scraping by to some extent, you know, if we had a major something happen in our life, it would put us back a while and we, we have to figure that out. So most of us think that would be fantastic. That'd be so great. But what comes with it is this, this sense of fear of, does anybody really like me? What do I do with this? Am I all alone in this? That kind of idea. What about you? Do you have any other stories or anything that people have said to you? I'm putting you on the spot, but yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know some people with money who are extremely humble and, and I, I think that's great. Like they, I mean, people, I, I'm trying to, like I'm thinking of so many different people. And I'm trying not to conflate stories. And, sure. Yeah. And uh, you also want to keep their identity. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 Um, you know, I know some people who are, are very humble with it. You wouldn't know. I know some people that you would know, but they don't throw it around. You know, I think one of the coolest things is anyone with any amount of money can do this, but I do know some particularly that are in the top one or half percent that the, you know how they throw their money around anytime somebody needs something mm -hmm. like the a, a church or a ministry or a person, you know, somebody needs to go to camp. Somebody needs, uh, you know, transportation for the youth group. They're just like, yeah, let me know. And I, I think that's, that's the heart that God's calling people to, but I think we tend to say, well, that that's for the, the uber rich or the ultra rich. And really God's calling that heart for everybody. Everybody, no matter what your level of finances are, uh, God's calling you to, to use that, to have mm -hmm. the mindset. And, and you don't, I, I, I think Rick Warren is, is spot on about this, whether you love everything or, or don't that Rick Warren says, he talks about how he over time increased his giving percentage and he said he started at 10 but the next year and every year he like added a percent until he was giving 14 18 30 and and then he right now he reverse ties he gives away 90 percent of his income and lives mm -hmm. off 10 mm -hmm. and he said people come up to me all the time and say rick if i had a book like you did and made millions like you do i would reverse tithe too and he says he says no you wouldn't they say oh yeah if i had all the extra money he said no he says you're not going to be the you're not going to be in the future somebody you aren't today. He says, if you're not doing it now, if you're not giving sacrificially now, you're not going to give sacrificially later. And I thought, man, that that's such a great statement that so many of us sit and we, we use, and when we talk about finances, we compare ourselves to others because I think everyone, wherever you're at, there are people who would look at me and be like, man, Alex makes a ton of money. There are people that I can look at and say, man, that guy makes a ton of money. Whatever place we're at, we can find someone who makes more money and say, if I had that, I would, I would do something different or mm -hmm. do something different than I'm doing right now. And I think the, the call of these woes is it's not so much about how much you have, but it's where your heart is at using it and increasing or decreasing the amount you have is just going to increase or decrease the amount that you use it in that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yep. and this is why I think regular tithing is important and not not just giving to a ministry event that we love, you know, uh, you, you, I've, we've seen studies, right, to where the older generation sees regular tithing as a discipline, a spiritual discipline. They give a certain mm -hmm. amount, you know, it's usually 10%. 
every month or out of their paycheck or whatever check they get. And then, then on above and beyond when other needs come up, they give, but there's all these studies that come out that encourage church leaders that younger, the younger generation, twenties and thirties don't give in that way. They want to give to something meaningful or impactful. They don't want their money used for overhead. They want it to feed starving children, dig wells, things like that. So they'd say in order to increase your giving, just keep having these, um, yeah, you know, special projects sure. that you're giving to. Right, we got to send kids to camp. We got to buy a bus. We got to do all that kind of stuff. And one, I don't, I don't like following that advice. I'm like, well, we're not just trying to squeeze more money out of people. Sure. We're going to give, we will do events, but they're important to us. But that's why I encourage, you know, 20s and 30s, that generation, even younger, you know, you can do this in high school, to give regularly as a spiritual discipline because if we just give at random times and random amounts, or we just feel like this amount, hopefully as you get older, your, your income grows, the amount that you're able to earn, your giving should grow with that because it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue of this. It's not like, you know, if I was still giving the same amount that I was when I was 16 making money, it it would show that the heart was not really about like, God, I, I depend on you for my giving. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm kind of talking around this and my kind of not the most clear here. No, I think it makes sense. That what you're saying is if you want to give more later, that's got to start today. That's one part of it. And, and there's a value in just giving faithfully. The reason why the tithe exists, even though we don't love it in a, as a younger generation there's a discipline there that just helps you start to view money the way it's supposed to be viewed. It's not really about you feeling good about yourself. It's about you just giving back to the Lord and, and doing things right. Is that a little bit of what you're saying? Yeah, about? yeah, yeah. And where I'm getting at, yeah, that was a good articulation of what I'm spending a lot of words to say. <laughs> uh, is it, it gets at that heart issue of sacrificial giving. Sure. If it's not, if giving is not in some way sacrificial, in some way I could have something else, I could have more of those four things, power or influence or status or security. I could, but because I value other people and I value ministry and I value what the Lord's called me to, I'm giving up some of that. And that's, I, I, and that's where I'm kind of pointing out like that. I don't think the tithe should be a requirement. I don't think it's a new Testament law or anything like that. Um, but I think it's very helpful for believers to say, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, if you're, if you're giving 10% of your income, like that is, there, there are opportunities, selfish opportunities that you are missing out on because you're giving that amount of money. If you, yeah. if you made $50,000, that's $5,000. What could you buy with $5,000 a year? If you make $100,000, that's $10,000. What could you buy with $10,000 a year? But what can the Lord do with that money when you say, hey, this isn't mine? I'm going to give it to the Lord. I'm going to give it to ministry. Yeah. yeah, and at the end of the day, I think people think churches are after money. That's not really true. What the Bible tells us is to give sacrificially. Yeah. And so yeah, so yeah, the Bible I'm, tells us to do that. It's not the church saying, we're just saying, the Bible's telling you this for a reason. There's something about it. And I think what you're ha- handling there is the idea that if you don't think about it that way, you're missing out on opportunities. And that's not to say that God's going to bless you. That's not going to say you're going to have everything you want. But learning to live sacrificially is a really good place to learn. And it it fits in with what the gospel is telling us to do. Yeah. Deny yourselves, take up your cross, follow me. Those are things that the Bible says over and over again. Right. Yeah. I'm not trying to increase, you know, Park Hill's 
budget here. Like, well, it's not. Give, I'm give, not give to some other churches. Yeah, I'm not opposed to the idea. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, this isn't like a drive. Like, we need more money, or you should be giving more. I'm more concerned about your heart. Yeah, like what? What is the? What is the status of your heart when it comes to finances? Because gone, gone too far, a, a heart that hoards and keeps is the really these first two, if not three, woes. Yeah. And I think the way that I would close this out is, you know, thinking about wealth and what you have and what you wish you had. If you ended your life without giving anything away, what, what opportunities would you have missed in that moment? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit of what community looks like versus security. 